Ladies and gentlemen, dream explorers and seekers of the extraordinary, welcome back to the Dream Hub podcast. Today is actually the highlight of my career. Not only is my guest a true luminary in the world of dream work and the exploration of consciousness, he's a dream shaman, an author of 16 or more dream books, and he's my teacher. His journey through the labyrinth of dreams has not only transformed his own life, but has also illuminated the path for countless others on their quest for self-discovery. He is now creating communities of dreamers all over the world by sharing down his wisdom to teachers just like myself. I'm delighted to introduce to you Robert Moss. Welcome to the Dream Hub podcast, Robert. So good to be dreaming with you, Melissa, and thank you for playing Dream Ambassador with such enthusiasm and grace. Absolutely, Robert. I'm so excited to have you here. To kick things off, I wanted to first share a story of how I discovered you, because it wasn't through social media. You're not one to be putting videos on TikTok or Instagram, and I didn't find you through the internet at all, or word of mouth, or even through your books. The crazy thing is that I discovered you through my dreams. One day I was laying in bed feeling sorry for myself. I was pretty unhappy. Thoughts were swelling around like, what should I do with my life? And as I was falling asleep, I heard this booming voice come in on my left side saying, Robert will know. It was so impactful that it woke me up. And I was wondering, Who is Robert? I had absolutely no idea. The next day, I watched a show on Gaia where a dream shaman was being interviewed and everything he was saying I was absolutely clinging to. I was blown away by the things he was saying about dreams. And when the show finished, I saw the name come up on the credits, Robert Moss, and my whole body was covered head to toe in goosebumps because I knew this voice was telling me about you. Now, I'm a chiromancer, so I took action from this special moment. I read your books and I joined your school of dream growing, and then I took the teacher's training. Now, by taking action from my dreams, I've been able to change my life for the better. And this is what you're all about too. You've even written a book on it called Dreaming True. So I'd love to hear about a time when you, Robert, when you've experienced a dream that's really changed your life. Ah, well, I'm going to answer that question. Before I do, thank you for that story. Thank you for that dream introduction that apparently I made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just need to tell you one that will go with it. May I do that first? Of I mean, I love hearing stories of how people came to me because of their dreams. And one of my favorites, along with yours, yours now joins my list of favorites, came from a physician, a woman physician from Alaska, who arrived in my workshop in Oregon back then and asked to explain what she was doing here, she said the following. She said, I dreamed that my two dead grandmothers appeared in the same dream, one Athapaskan Indian, one Euro-American. They said, you must find Robert, Robert Moss. She got the whole name. She didn't know it, but she got the name. And they said, because until you meet Robert, you won't know the bear. And until you know the bear, you'll just be a doctor and not yet a healer. So she looks online, Robert Moss. She finds I'm leading a workshop called Dancing with the Bear, Reclaiming the Arts of Dream Healing down the left coast of North America and Oregon. She buys herself a plane ticket. She comes, and we made a journey to meet the medicine bear, the great healing animal of North America. She met the bear. 
She kept in touch, came to other workshops and trainings, and she told me that when people come to a doctor's office now in Alaska, they get her hands with the best Western allopathic medicine, but around them they get the paws of the bear, the healing bear, the medicine bear. And she told me that once when a patient had to go into the operating room, the nurses, the patient, and the doctor were all singing together the bear song that I give people in my workshops. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Of course, I'm an Aussie. We don't have native bears in Australia. No. We've got koalas. They're very cute. They're <laughs> not bears. But you know what? It's in the European ancestry, and it's all over the world. So there you are. So you want a dream that changed my life. Is that what you're asking for? Yeah. Well, he was a critical one in midlife uh, when uh, I had felt called to this work. And I was giving up a pretty successful career doing other things in order to become a dream teacher. There was no career track back then for this. I don't know whether there is yet, but I hope there will be. I hope that we can become dream teachers without having to go through the slog of becoming psychologists or something else. We can focus on the main thing. That's what I'm trying to bring about. So I had learned, studied the traditions of the Iroquois Indians, the native people of the Northeast, because of my dreams. I'd studied the Mohawk language, and I'd, uh, you know, got deep into it. I, I'd do my research. And the big dream was this. I'd asked for a dream to guide me on some routine issues, some problems, money problems, probably how to pay the rent, that kind of thing. And I dreamed that I'm in a clogged and jammed street where nothing is moving. And I wake from the dream feeling very frustrated. I thought I'd just been given a picture of my situation. It feels clogged. There's construction. Nothing's moving. But I do something that I now tell people to do all the time. Go back inside the dream. See if you can dream it onward. So I'm now practicing a core technique of our approach, which is dream reentry. You go back into the dream. You see if you can go beyond, in this case, the log jam, the stuck place. So I'm back in the dream, and it looks the same, except I'm sort of floating above the scene. So I'm a bit of a witness perspective. And I suddenly see this beautiful man. He's beautiful. He's flying. And I'm looking thinking, oh my God, he looks like an impossibly beautiful younger version of my own self. And he is flying. Oh, how could I forget? I'm dreaming. I can fly. I'm not stuck. So I start following him and he flies up something like a storm drain going up. And suddenly I'm on a mountaintop and it's beautiful. It's green. It's natural. It's lovely. And I forget about him and I forget about the earlier preoccupations I had. There is a building. It's like a longhouse, like a native longhouse of the Iroquoian tradition. And I look in the door, and there are people gathered for ceremony around a fire pit. And I'm hesitant because I don't want to interrupt their sacred ritual, if that's what it is. But the elders and the grandmothers beckon to me, come, come, we're waiting for you. Come and join us. And I sit with the native people. I understand their language. And they're drumming, and they're singing, and I sing with them. And then the fire gets gentle. And I go and I lie by the fire at the center of the circle. And the dream people come to me one by one. And they take red-hot coals from the fire. And they place them over my ears. And they say, in cadenced language, we do this to open your ears so you will hear clearly. And they place them over my eyes. We do this to open your eyes so you will see, hear, see clearly. They place one on my tongue. And they say, we do this to open your mouth. You will speak only truth. And they place one on my heart, and I feel the stab of pain as the fire reaches the heart and then streams from my heart to my voice to my throat. And they say, we do this to open your heart and the passage from your heart to your throat, so that henceforth 
you will speak and act only from the heart. I did no analysis with this dream. I jumped out of bed. I got in my car. I drove to a wood, a park, not far from my home. And I said, in the presence of the lake and the trees and the clouds and the red-tailed hawk that came knifing through the clouds with my hand on my heart, I said, henceforth, I will speak and act only from the heart. I still fall down every day, but you know that a dream like that becomes your beacon fire on the darkest night, becomes your hearth fire when you need to recall what it's all about. So that, amongst all the thousands of dreams I've recorded, is probably the one that was the clincher, the, the turning point, the mm -hmm. one that was the absolute confirmation, which you do not doubt, that gives you purpose, and as I say, the light on the darkest day and the hearth fire when you need warmth to sustain you. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful dream. Thank you for sharing. I can certainly see how living from the heart would stop you from feeling so stuck in life and so congested. So that that's really interesting there. And those sorts of dreams, like you said, you don't need to do interpretation for because you know it and you felt it and it's real for you. And the shift comes from when you wake up and all of a sudden you're just different. Now, people are always talking about lucid dreaming and trying to use that for personal development. But you don't actually teach about the typical lucid dreaming where people like to take control in a way of the dream, but instead you've created active dreaming, which is a method of shamanic lucid dreaming, a way of consciously living and bringing energy and guidance from the dream into everyday life. This is an even more soulful way of doing personal development, but some people are yet to grasp the concept of this. Would you please explain more about these styles? Well, first of all, I am interested in lucid dreaming. I didn't like years ago the way the term was being used. You know, you're going to control your dreams, be master of your dreams, make everything up, tell yourself it's only a dream. Therefore, you can do anything you like, have sex with anybody, be master of the universe. I didn't like the rather jejune, adolescent way it used to be discussed. The discussion has matured. So I, I'm, I'm less hesitant about using the phrase lucid dreaming than I used to be. I would say that if you want to be a lucid dreamer, the easiest way to do it is to start out lucid and stay that way. I mean, we hear about different ways of waking yourself up to the fact that you're lucid inside the dream. Okay, fine, if that's what you want to do. But why not practice, for example, spending more time in the twilight zone between sleep and awake, the middle of the night, hypnagogic area, watching the images that rise and fall. You can simply do that. It becomes a form of horizontal meditation. But you may find that you're given a landscape and encounter something you want to follow, so you're off and you're into a lucid dream adventure, quite naturally, quite spontaneously, any night you like. In, in the core techniques of active dreaming, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment if you like, one of our, one of our main methods is what we call dream re-entry. You have a dream, you have, it can be a personal image of any kind, actually, it's got some juice for you, you'd like to explore it further, maybe there's something fearful, something challenging. You would like to confront and deal with and get out of the way. Maybe there's romance and adventure going on and you'd like more of it. Maybe you'd like more information from the dream so you can see whether what you saw is going to happen next Tuesday or not. Going back inside a dream that you have that has you, an image that is with you, is another way of embarking on conscious lucid dreaming. When we add the drumming, which we do typically in the workshops, it becomes shamanic lucid dreaming in the sense that we're making a journey with the drum, which has been a popular and effective way of shifting consciousness for thousands of years. And we're adding that fuel and that focus to the journey. Uh, I would say that 
being lucid in a dream is less important than being volitional. What do I mean? I mean, you want to recognize that you have the power to choose in whatever reality you are in, you know, greater or lesser. In physical reality, your power to choose might be somewhat inhibited by the fact that you can't walk through walls or jump off mountains or do other things that you can do in your dream body where things are more floaty and, and more malleable. But nonetheless, I want people, I want to encourage people to test the limits of the possible wherever they are, dreaming, sleeping, waking, in any state of consciousness or reality. Test your ability to choose. Don't tell yourself, I have no choice. Uh, that, that way you join the procession of the walking dead. So it's really, for me, just to play with words a bit further about volitional dreaming, dreaming as an act of choosing more than about lucid dreaming. Active dreaming is a phrase I made up as a provocation. You know, when people talk about dreams at all, and they're getting more open about dreams, thank goodness, finally, in our culture. But when people draw, talk about dreams, they often talk as if it's something that happened to you. I, I lay down, I went to sleep, I had a dream. Maybe the dream had you, but they say, I had a dream in English. Uh, in French, they say, j'ai fait I made a dream, which is actually more interesting. In other, in other languages, they say, I saw a dream, I saw in a dream. But in good old English, we say, I had a dream. Okay, it sounds so passive, doesn't it? Well, I have great respect for spontaneous sleep dreams, the ones we don't ask for and maybe do not want because they show us all sorts of things we need to know. They hold of a magic mirror, our actions and attitudes. We can see ourselves of witness perspective. That can be humbling. It can be very funny be embarrassing, but it's a good thing to be able to see. But nonetheless, you know, we can be active about dreaming in a number of ways. First of all, beyond interpreting dreams, beyond analyzing dreams, we can just reduce them to dust and, 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 and empty concepts. We want to take action from dreams to embody guidance and energy, maybe healing and creativity coming from another world into this one. This is real magic, to learn to take action from your dreams. We can be active with our dreams in the sense we can set out consciously to have the adventure. We can set a plan for a dream. We can do that by incubation, by setting an, in, an intention before sleep, before the night. We can do it in, in other shamanic ways, including the dream reentry process I, I talked about. We can do it by returning to places we have met and we have encountered in the dreamscape and building a whole astral geography for ourselves for adventures and rendezvous with others and experiments in consciousness and mutual dreaming. Uh, and of course, dreaming isn't just about what we do with our eyes closed, whether it's sleep dreams or shamanic journeying or the hypnagogic state. Dreaming for me is also about looking at everything as if it's a field of dream symbols and dream signs and poetic rhymes and patterns. So navigating by synchronicity, for which I admitted the word chiromancy, which you mentioned, K-A-I-R-O, chiromancy, which is the practice of being ready to recognize those special moments when the universe gets personal, special moments of meaningful coincidence, and see, take advantage of those moments to do something fun and useful. Uh, so that's also another mode of dreaming. So active dreaming has all those modes and methods of approach. And as I say, it's not just about what you can do with your eyes closed. It's about what you can do with your eyes open and all your senses a quiver, alive to the field of dreaming all around you. I loved these topics in our classes that we covered because when I first signed up, I had no idea that you could just 
go in and create a dream and experience something within five or 10 minutes and then get up and go about your day. I was always trying to do wake-induced lucid dreaming at nighttime and I'd get too tired and fall asleep. So coming to your class really changed the way that I do things. And now, you know, I might have a problem and I will just go and lay down for 10 minutes and figure something out. I love how you talk about chiromancy and recognizing and seizing the special moments of synchronicity in our lives. It is really fascinating. And you've even written a book about this whole topic as well. Could you provide an example to the listeners of a particularly powerful chiromantic experience and how it influenced your path? Well, I think I'll share a small one, if that's all right. It was just it's a small one, but it's just a sort of everyday thing which will perhaps reassure anybody watching us that you can do this too. It doesn't have to be mind-blowing. It doesn't have to be life-changing. I gave you a life-changing dream. I'm just thinking right now about my little dog and how he's a synchronicity magnet. I walk him to the park and things happen around us, and I notice it might be the vanity plate on a car or a sticker on the back of the car or something like that. Well, one day I'm walking my little dog to the park and I've got an issue on my mind. The issue is really as simple as this. Can I really do two projects in the coming autumn, the coming fall at the same at the same time? They're, they're problems. Can I really do both? I sort of committed to do both, but I'm worried. So I haven't set a theme for guidance, but I've got a concern on my mind. Can I do two projects at the same time? Here's my little dog. Big man, I don't know, gets out of a big truck, big box on his shoulder. He looks at me. He looks at the dog and he says in this burly voice, well, he can't kill us both at the same time, can he? <laughs> what is this? I'm so tottering up there for once. I'm speechless. What did he just say? What does this mean? Suddenly it hits me. He just told me, I cannot do both projects at the same time. I cannot kill them in the benign sense at the same time. He just gave me a message on my theme. But it gets better because I'm thinking, well, now I have the embarrassing situation of calling a man who will be disappointed. They're going to tell him I'm not going to do something he thought I had committed to do. It takes me an hour, really, to muster the courage to make the phone call. And he's upset, and I, I really feel bad. And then he says, tell me again what that guy with the box on his shoulder said. Oh, he can't kill both of us at the same time, can he? He starts laughing, says, Robert, you and the synchronicity stuff, I must admit... I would have to have received the same message you did. It's fine. No hard feelings. It's okay. So in that one little moment of receiving a message from the stranger on the street, I received not only guidance on the issue, what I needed to do, but help in handling someone who was going to be disappointed when I passed on my decision. So it was a complete package. I mean, really remarkable and remarkably specific. I, I noticed this in my life. You know, we do draw things according to how we are, what we think, what we feel. In that sense, the law of attraction is for real and always has been. We are magnetic. We do. When I when I heard you telling the story about, you know, uh, Robert speaking to you in the dream, I was thinking of something that A. E. George Russell, the, the Irish patron poet, friend of Yeats, said. He said, your own will come to you. Your own will come to you across distance, across dimension, your own will come to you. They're looking for you according to what? According to affinity with the old word, beautiful word, according to who you are, what you're like, what you like, what passions drive you. And I notice that sometimes to me, synchronicity speaks in incredibly 
detailed in specific ways. Would you like a longer story, a mythic story about synchronicity? Yes, yeah, sure. In, in very specific ways. So I was traveling to my local airport with copies of Homer and the Argonautica, the story of the Golden Fleece, in my bag. Why? Because I dreamed the night before I had written a modern version of a Greek epic, starting with an invocation of the muses. So I think I better get back to the Greek, Greek epics. And I've got a woman sitting next to me on the plane, very feisty older lady, and she talks just like me, this, you know, this kind of Anglo-Australian thing. I say to her, you talk just like me. She says, of course, I'm Helen of Troy, she says. Now look at her with absolute scope. You're Helen of Troy? And I get the joke because not only is she an Aussie, not only does she know the, the classics, but she's living in the city of Troy, New York, where I used to live. So the connection is already strong. I used to live there. And then I arrive at uh, the city where I'm going to uh, give the presentation and go and record something for Gaia, where you saw me. Maybe not the show that you watched, or maybe it was. <laughs> I don't know. This might loop back yeah. to, your, to your opening story. So I arrived, but, but the night before I go to Gaia, I've got an event at the Boulder Bookstore. So I'm in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm greeted at the reception desk by a pretty young lady whose name is Athena. And I say, where's Odysseus? She says, oh, he works for the shop. I'll page him. Paging Odysseus. <laughs> and here comes this handsome young guy, muscular guy with long hair and beard. You're Odysseus? Yes. Oh, you made that up. No, no. My parents were in Greece on the honeymoon. They called me Odysseus. I've got Helen of Troy. I've got Athena. I've got Odysseus. I arrive at the Gaia Studios. And the lady who brings me my coffee is named Gaia. She's got a huge earth serpent tattooed on her arm. And I go into the studio and they say to me, Robert, tell us what it's like to live consciously at the center of the multinational universe. And I start telling this story, Helen of Troy. Wait, 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 let's get Icarus in here. Icarus is a <laughs> producer. They bring this young guy named Icarus into the studio to join the conversation. So I try to be clever. I say, Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun, Sonny. And Icarus stands to his full height and says very proudly, oh, they got the story wrong. They didn't tell my story correctly. I just threw away my wings because I didn't need them anymore. So here's a kid rewriting the myth of Icarus who flew too close to the sun in the studios. And I'm thinking, you know, this is how I feel about synchronicity sometimes. The powers behind the curtain of our ordinary perception are sort of nudging each other and chuckling, and say, should we give him another? Has he gotten up so far? Does he understand something else is going on? Because this is one of the one of the things associated with synchronicity and why we are so dull if we don't pay attention. You feel a hidden hand. You feel a wink or a nod or a nudge from power or something pushing you back sometimes behind the veil of ordinary understanding. Synchronicity is a way of conscious dreaming, wide-awake dreaming, which we can become much more alert the secret logic of our lives and to the play of powers beyond the ordinary in our lives. Mm. Dreams are sort of us pushing into other realms, and then synchronicity is the other realms pushing through back to us. And that says it very well. Yeah, I just know that unless you're open and receptive and aware and looking for these things, then it's very easy to just ignore them and not notice and not pay attention. Like you could have easily not spoken to the lady next to you, but it's just, I find that when I'm aware and looking around and having things on my mind and being open to the possibilities of it, they're everywhere. 
And if I'm just going about my day without paying attention, I don't notice any of it and it's all hidden. So I think that one of the tricks is just believing it and being open and being aware. And like your your book, Sidewalk Oracles, when you go outside and just pose a question to the street, I like that one. And what's the first thing that you notice um, that comes to you? And it's very interesting. I did this um, with a dream about my dog. And as soon as I walked outside, I went for a walk. And then I looked down and there was dog footprints in the cement right next to me. After in my dream, a medium had come to me and told me that my deceased dog was always by my side. And I looked down and see that on the road. And if I wasn't looking for it or aware or having it on my mind, I would never have noticed those footprints there. But it's just there's little bits of magic everywhere if we're willing to see and willing to look for it. Well, thank you for that. That's very moving. And by the way, our relationship with our beloved animal friends who have passed on is a very important aspect of dreaming to which many people are open. People who have difficulty talking about other kinds of dreams or even talking about their relationship with departed humans. Over, mm. tend to open up when you start talking about the dog or the cat. I had a beloved uh, black dog who was killed on the road the night before Halloween many, many years ago, and I buried him with my hands on the edge of the human graveyard on the hill at the farm where we were living at the time. He was around for a year after his death, almost physically. I'd look in the rear vision mirror of the Jeep that he loved to ride in. I have to say, lie down, Kipling, we can't see. <laughs> I realized after a year, okay, I better make sure he doesn't feel bound. So it's very much a one family dog. So I did a little ceremony for him. I burned some meat and watched the smoke change direction as the wind changed and blow up towards his gravesite. Then for many years after, he was in my dreams again and again. And I realized it's no longer after a certain point, probably the individual spirit, but it's like a collective entity, like Anubis in the backyard. And I've noticed, uh, that other animals I have loved have turned up and shown me things too. And this is a talking point that you actually can raise with people who are rational or skeptical, they might be in other ways, open up because the heart is touched. You know, the heart is mm -hmm. touched. And it becomes so sometimes we discover that the the pet, the animal that shed our lives, the dog, the horse, the cat, the rabbit even it becomes the familiar face of the guide. Is it exactly the individual spirit anymore? That's open to discussion, but can certainly be the guide. So thank you for bringing us into that area. It's very important. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I'd love to delve into your own personal journey through this kind of a topic. I'm aware that as a young child, you had three experiences that people today would categorize as a near-death experience, although one of those experiences wasn't just near-death, you actually did die and you were announced clinically dead and your soul traveled. You went to the other side and then shockingly you came all the way back into your body and your life on earth was saved. Now this is huge. I want to hear about like what internal impact did this have on you? Well, it's an Aussie story, so I'll put it in context. It happened <laughs> the first, when I was three my mother had taken me out to West Australia, where her family was, and my my mother's aunt was uh, Violet Concanon, who was famous as a coloratura soprano, friend of Nellie Melba, understudy of Nellie Melba, and somewhat surreptitiously, a very gifted psychic medium, right? So this, let's start here, because I'm talking to an Aussie, and I'm yeah. <laughs> talking about my Australian boyhood. And uh, Auntie Dick, as we called her, read the tea leaves. For us, for me, she turned white when she read mine, went away, wouldn't talk about it till later because she saw my death. 
didn't see anything else. So that's the prelude. So in Hobart, Tasmania, when my father was stationed as an army officer that winter, I was pronounced clinically dead from pneumonia. Then when I came back, the doctor said, probably with some embarrassment, oh, your boy died and he came back, didn't he? Which is the phrase that I've used ever since. I read a memoir called The Boy Who Died and Came Back. And frankly, I can't tell you anything about what happened that time. I just know it's very hard for me to operate a body afterwards. I was born a sturdy, potentially very outdoorsy Aussie guy. But after that, it was very hard for me. I was sick all the time. I had double pneumonia 12 times between the ages of 3 and 11. It was a very difficult childhood. So I missed a lot of what a typical Aussie boy would have, would have enjoyed. When I was nine, it happened again. And this time I remembered. I was under emergency surgery for a for an appendix that was about to blow up. The doctor said I would have died if it had been 30 minutes later. And I'm out of my body. And at the beginning, it sounds like a typical ND, out of your body, floating under the ceiling, watching the surgery, listening to the nurses talk, not wanting to be there. So you drift off and I drift off down the corridor. There's my mother grieving and I don't want to see that because I feel guilty. I'm an only child. Her life is so hard worrying about me. So I want to do something an Aussie boy would do, get out on the beach or something. So I'm looking at the window, and the window sort of pops to me like, like toffee. It stretches, and I'm out. And I, I'm flying towards Luna Park in Melbourne. Luna Park, just for fun, right? The big moon face of the theme park. I've forgotten about the body in the operating room. I go through the gate. I'm going to get on the rides, look at the girls in their summer dresses. I get on the ghost train. <laughs> and suddenly I'm in a world that seems to be inside the world. It's completely different. The people are beautiful. They're very elongated, very pale, but very lovely. And they receive me as their own, and I feel completely at home. And I forget about the boy in the operating room. And I see him, I grow up. I seem to become a father, a grandfather, some kind of shaman or elder of these people. I share their food. I share their lives. I live maybe 90, 100 years. I don't know. Then that body is gone, and I leave it, and I expect to go to another star. But suddenly, bang, after nine minutes of clock time, 90 years somewhere else, I'm back in the body on the bed. And I remember and you know what? You know, my parents were good people. My father's an army officer. It's a conservative period in Australia. We don't talk about dreams or visions. Real men don't do that right. Mm. It's very hard. You know, the, the doctor said, oh, poor kid, it's hallucinations. He's on medication. The first person, and, and I'm an army prat in American terms. I mean, we're going from one place to another. I, my, my fondest years in boyhood, by the way, were on the Gold Coast in Queensland. We lived for three years. But... Um, uh, First person I met who could make sense of this and confirm it to me was an Aboriginal kid, and I wasn't supposed to hang out with them in those days because Australia was different. But he'd say when I talk about this, very matter of fact, oh, yeah, we do that. You know, mate, we get sick. We go and live with the spirits, don't we? When we get well, sometimes we're the same, sometimes we're not. So when Raymond Moody, who became a friend of mine many years later, wrote his books about the near-death experience and gave us that, that phrase. I was glad to have it, but I still don't think about what happened to me as a near-death experience. I died. Mm -hmm. I lived somewhere else, lived a whole life somewhere else, and I came back. And this time I came back remembering. So one of the gifts of this extreme experience was that I have known, to my certain knowledge, since that age of nine, that there are worlds beyond the physical, that we can travel there, that it's not weird to think we can talk to the dead who are alive somewhere else. It's not weird to think we can see across space and time because I found I had all those powers. But because I was living in a conservative era in the kind of family I was in, I was 
tight-lipped about it. I didn't talk about it too much. It took all sorts of experiences in my life to not only make me as open as I am now, but to realize it's probably a good thing for other people to know these things are possible and that you can do it without the extremity of the mm. near-death experience or what I went through. You can do it quite safely mm. by just expanding your ability, your willingness to experiment with consciousness in everyday ways. Mm. And that takes me on to the topic about how dreams and death are so linked to the point that they're almost the same thing. And because of this, dreams can actually prepare us for dying because they offer insights into the process of death and they let us feel what it's like and what's on the other side. Can I ask if I was unwell, if I was terminal or very elderly, what advice would you give me to help me with this stage of life? Uh, well, get ready to dream your way into it. I'm <laughs> smiling because people have asked me over the years, can you die in your sleep? Can you die in your dreams? <laughs> said, what better way to go than to <laughs> make your exit through a dream that is a delightful dream leading to a pleasant, you know, a pleasant landscape. Uh, dreaming is the key. Uh, in our dreams, whether we know it or not, whether we're even remembering them or not, we are already visiting places where we are likely to be when we have left our physical life. The Lakota of North America have a saying about that. They say that the path of the soul after death is the same as the path of the soul in dreams. The path of the soul after death is the same as the path of the soul in dreams. We might add, except you're not coming back to the body you left in the mm. in the bed or the armchair when you when you went dreaming. I think that is literally true. I think the dreaming is the best practice for dying. We get familiar with landscapes beyond the ones that we know. We get we get to know people who are alive somewhere else. We find guides and teachers. So I would say that, you know, whenever you're approaching death, and by the way, who is not approaching death? Uh, mm -hmm. My dear, you're dying right now. I know. So <laughs> watching this. I mean, so as everybody, it's never too late or too early to think about these things. Uh, the best way to think about them, the best way to prepare for them is to dream and record your dreams and look at what your dreams are showing you and pay attention to location, location, location. Diane Fortune, the famous uh, leader of the mystery school in Britain, said in a book called Through the Gates of Death that the places you'll find in the afterlife will be familiar because you've been there in your dreams. Uh, she's not the only one who, who says that. I'll say it myself you're likely to find when you leave this body that you're not in completely alien territory. You'll be with people and in places that you already, already visited, whether or not you held the memory, whether or not you prepared for it. So this is the very best way to prepare. Of course, the other way that you've got to do, and the Tibetans are very clear about this, but we don't have to be Tibetans to do this. Try to live and die with as few regrets as possible. I mean, try to clean up your act in terms of asking yourself, what if I died today, would I most regret having done or not done in my relations with other people, in the, the failures or the triumphs of my life? What do I regret where I could not find the courage I needed to take a risk? What do I regret where I hurt someone else? What do I regret that someone else hurt me? And see if you can move beyond those regrets. See if there are actions you can take to move beyond regrets. I mean, that's a key part of it too. I mean, we, we, because we're all going to go through some kind of a life review. As we get older, some of us find us, ourselves doing it almost every night. It can be a bit tedious if, if it's four o'clock and you're yet again going over some mistake that you might have made. But that's probably also good preparation. 
and good preparation. Because when one of the things that happens when we leave, leave this life, I think, unless we're bodhisattvas, and really not many of us are actually bodhisattvas in this world right now, unless you're a bodhisattva who's dealt with everything already and stayed on in this world or come to this world in a, a salvific savior's role. Uh, there are things that you, you've done, you've made mistakes, etc. We're going to go through some form of a life review. And part of that process is Yeats, the poet, was very clear about this. He said that one of the things that goes on in the transitional phase beyond life is that, that people dream back. He meant they dream back into the life that they've led, left, including contact with the survivors uh, who they left behind to try and understand the story that they were living before they died. We need to make sense of our story. Why? Because the choices and opportunities that will wait for us in the phases of transition beyond death will be partly dependent upon our assessment, our, our own assessment, our own judgment of what we did right and did wrong in the life that we've led, left behind. So this is something to think about. I think beyond death, the essential judgment is one we are going to pass upon ourselves for good or bad or mixed. We can we can personify it as some external agency, but I think eventually after death, uh, we, we are the ones who are going to make the fundamental choices. In order to make the right choices in any reality, we need to have a clear picture. Yeah. And I feel like what clearer picture can you get than using our dreams in this life to act upon throughout the days? and use them as a, a nudge on what action we need to be taking so that we can sort of clear up our lives and be living in a way that we want to be living in and have, you know, our life and our values and everything nice and clean and tip-top before we die so that there's not so much work to do on the other side. <laughs> That's very well put, Melissa. I mean, dreams are fun, dreams are adventures, dreams are warnings or glimpses of the future. Dreams are many things, but in addition to all those other things, dreams are also the voice of conscience, which is why I worry profoundly about people who manage to shut out their dreams in our life. We see too many of them power in our world, men, usually men, who are just shutting out any sort of voice of inner conscience or valuation, because dreams will remind us of what, about what matters. I remember Jung, Jung writing the case of a businessman who was about to embark on some venture. Then he dreamed the night before he signed the contract that he dipped his hands deep into a bucket of you-know-what. <laughs> his hands are covered in crap. And he decides, okay, this is a judgment on the decision I'm about to make. I won't do it. <laughs> so that's, that's a fairly, fairly vivid example of how a dream can be both a voice of conscience and a corrective. I think the dreams of the night are often a corrective for the delusions of the day, contrary to the way that many people look at these things. Mm, definitely. And there are so many different things that dreams involve and different reasons that we have them and, and different things that they cover. And one of them I do find extremely interesting, and this is the topic of dreaming the soul back home. Um, and it's all to do with healing sort of in linear time, our past selves or our, our child selves. And um, there's this bit here that I'll just read out. It says, as dreamers, we can move outside time. As a time traveler, you can journey to a younger self in her now time. As a voice in her mind, you can provide the encouragement and counsel that she may need at a time of unbearable pain or challenge. You can be the friend and protector that she lacked when her need was great. 
from this can flow tremendous healing for both of you, for you in your present time and for her in her own time. And Robert, I'd love to hear about a time when you've experienced something like this yourself or any insights that you'd like to share about dreaming the soul back home. That's a very good passage you read, Melissa. I commend your choice of text. Thanks. <laughs> well, I'll give you a very, very simple story. Um, as you heard, I was a lonely, sickly child. Uh, when we were living in, in Melbourne, my mother would take me to Myers Department Store, to the cafe in Myers Department Store, have tea and crumpets from time to time. And uh, I would start asking for crumpets with salt and pepper instead of jam. And I'll tell you why. This is the prelude. One of my invisible companions, invisible to everybody except me, who helped get me through, it's a big man with a lot of white hair and a pink face. He'd come and sit on my bedside and say, Robert, I know you're lonely. Back up. You know the love of women and they'll love you. I know you are lonely and you can't share your dreams, but the day will come when a lot of people want to hear your dreams. You're going to survive, mate. And he said, by the way, put salt and pepper on your crumpets. It's much more tasty than the jam your mother likes. That was my older self. That was my older self, much younger than I am now. I started doing this about, mm, gosh, more than 30 years ago. I, I discovered, I became conscious of the fact that we can consciously go back to that younger self or look in on an older self for that matter and communicate mind to mind. So you might think I'm crazy, but I'm convinced that I was part of my own support system as a lonely, sickly boy. And one of the prices that my older self asked of my younger self, because I have a savory tooth, as all these used to say, is put salt and pepper on the crumpets, mate. I think I helped to get him through. And uh, I'm thinking now of a woman who's one of our dream teachers, as you are, who went back to her 13-year-old self at the time when she was burnt over most of her body in a kitchen fire. She was about to become a woman. She was terribly burnt and she played support system guide, mentor, protector for that younger self. And the doctors were amazed at the time by how quickly she healed. If you think this is crazy, what have you got to, to lose by trying it? But this is only half the story. This half of the story is about playing guide, protector, mentor to a younger self in a time of difficulty. And sometimes playing advisor when they're making mistakes. I've gone back to younger versions of myself. I thought of making terrible mistakes and tried to pull them back. I hope that that's been effective too. But the other part of it is bringing back the part of ourselves, the younger self perhaps, that might have checked out of life because the world got cold and cruel. I haven't met any human being who has not shown to me some signs of what shamans call soul loss, which means you know, you've lost a part of your vital energy, maybe part of your identity, maybe part of your joy, part of your ability to dream because the world was harsh. You were abused, you were violated, you were betrayed, you were neglected, you were lonely and sickly. You had to make a wrenching life choice or choice was made for you and you didn't want to go that way and part of you refused to go that way and stayed somewhere else. You went to live in a garden behind the moon went to live, or somewhere like that. You were hidden grandma's house. I, I, I've met this so many times. And, you know, there is so much to be gained in life if we can find a way to call back, embrace, hold close to us, a younger self with her joy, with her energy, with her imagination, and with her dreaming. You know, amongst the native people I know best, the Iroquois or Iroquois, uh, they used to say, 
that if you've lost your connection with your dreams, it's because part of your soul is gone. You've lost the dreamer in you. This is a serious condition. You're suffering serious soul loss. That's why you're not dreaming, because a part of you that's connected to the spirit world that reveals itself in dreams checked out of your life. And that is serious. Something needs to be done about that. What needs to be done? Well, shamanic practitioners do soul retrieval, which is when they make a journey for you and bring back, hopefully, some part that belongs to you and put it in your body. I used to do that, but these days I have, want to make people the healers of their own lives and the shamans of their own souls. So what I teach and practice I call soul recovery, which is when we make a family, an intentional family, we support someone in their journeys and their efforts to call back to themselves and hold in their embrace and hold in their body and their lives. For example, a younger self with her energy and imagination and hold them together so that they are one and can do so much more. Mm. It's a really beautiful topic and I definitely agree with you when almost all of us have experienced soul loss at some point in life when it's been traumatic. And this is when sort of reoccurring dreams pop up. And I feel like it's sort of a symbol saying like, hello, this is where the soul loss has happened. Come and help me or come and integrate me. And with your practices of doing like the active dreaming, I feel like this is a really helpful way for people to be able to go and and help themselves um, rather than, you know, giving into being the victim of a nightmare in the middle of the night and saying, oh, I just keep getting these terrible dreams over and over again and they don't know what to do with them. So I feel like reading your book about dreaming the soul back home and then also practicing some of your active dreaming techniques of going into that place and deciding and thinking about what would you do? What would you do differently in the dream and how would you change it? to shape your experience in the way that you want it to. It's really interesting. I really love the the topic and the idea. So thank you for sharing all of that. I was just thinking about the dream reentry technique in relation to soul recovery. Um, one of the symptoms of soul loss is that someone has lost connection with the dream world. So you might say, how can dreamers help? How can a dream teacher help if someone doesn't have any dreams? What I found to be very therapeutic and very effective again and again and again is to ask someone who says she doesn't have any dreams, think back, can you remember the last dream that you had? And often it takes them back 30 years or more. And I'll tell you a story about that if you'd like to hear it. Yeah. I was teaching in France and we had a woman there who'd done all sorts of practices. She'd done Tai Chi, she'd done shaman, shamanic journeying, she'd done lots of things. But she was a bit annoyed with the group because at the breakfast table every morning, residential retreat, we're sharing dreams. She says, but I don't have any of your dreams. I mean, I've got this, I've got that. She's very angry. I said, I, so I finally decided to be a little bit more confrontational than I usually choose to be. I said, I don't believe you. She said, what? What? Tell me the last dream you remember in your life. Okay, she says, I'm nine years old, 30 years ago. So she's 39. Tell me. Okay, well. A uh, hand is reaching out from behind a curtain and is holding chocolate, and I love chocolate. But my parents said, don't take candy from strangers, so I don't take the chocolate, and I wake up yelling for my parents. Maman, papa, make a, a dream. Go back to sleep with just a dream, which idiotic parents do again and again. Children know it's for real. So she has no help. She's a good Catholic girl. She prays to Jesus and Mary and all the saints. No more dreams. And clearly her prayers were answered, but 30 years she's had no dreams because she was scared by hand offering chocolate from behind the curtain. 
but still got energy for it. She's still frightened as she talks about it. I say, okay, if I were you, I'd go back inside the dream and open the curtain and see who's offering the target. No, no, I don't want to do that. Will you come with me? I say, okay, well, we'll form a small group. We'll support you, but you'll do the work. We'll just be with you. It's your friends. So we're drumming. It's a, it's a shamanic circle. We're drumming. We're making a journey inside a dream with different groups are doing different things. And she's back inside her dream. We see it to some extent because we're together. You can dream with other people, by the way. You don't have to do it just by yourself. So we see some of it. She opens the curtain. She sees a radiant being, a sort of angelic being. Wow! And then the features resolve and becomes the face of a man she loved. It's like her second father. He owned a toy shop in Paris. He let her play there after hours. Nothing funny going on. It was just a genuine love affair, her second father. Oh, it was you. It was you. Why didn't you show yourself? Oh, sweet your Cherie, you forgot I was killed in that motor accident and my face was mutilated. And I couldn't show myself. I would have terrified you, but I wanted to do something sweet for you. Oh, oh, tears, tears. So something's going on here. And at the next morning, at the breakfast table, she's ticked off again because she's the first at the table and she has dreams to tell and we're not there as early as she is. <laughs> when we sit down at the table... It's eight dreams, one after the boom, 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 train grand vitesse, high-speed train. And we feel something like fireflies or dragonflies buzzing around us in the air. Her dreams have come back. Part of her soul has come back because she went back inside a dream, removed a fear, and opened the dream again. There's more to it, but that's enough for now. So I've seen this kind of magic work. And, you know, it's magic that actually she worked for herself. She was supported. She was sponsored. She was held by her intentional family. But essentially, she did the healing. She did the shaman work for herself, which is what I always love to see. Mm. I love to see the energy that returns to people once they rediscover their dreams. My husband did the same thing where he shut out his dreams for over 10 years and he got really tired of hearing me every morning. Oh, this is where I went last night. This is what I did last night, telling all my stories. And he'd sip his coffee and roll his eyes. Like, why do you talk about these things like it's actually real? You know, I'd get a bit emotional telling some stories of where I'd been. And he'd just start getting more frustrated and bored hearing it all. Like, you know, he pretended to be interested. He was a little bit, but it just was too much for him. And he was obviously feeling a bit left out. And then, yeah, I got him to be my guinea pig and, and we got his dreams back. And then just the difference in him from when he had this dream drought to now when he does have his dreams and he's the one running downstairs like, oh, kids, be quiet. I need you, mom. We're going to do dream therapy. Like, come on, listen to this. And his dreams will be huge and they're long and there's like so much going on. And I, the thing, I just love seeing like the zest and the energy that's within him. And I've been seeing and witnessing the same things with friends and family members and people that have been coming to me. As their dreams are growing, their energy for life is growing. And it's just, yeah, people think, oh, or some people say dreams don't mean anything, dreams are nothing and they blow it off. But I don't know how you can blow it off unless you actually give it a go and experience it for yourself and then see the difference and feel the difference in yourself every day. It's just absolutely amazing. 
And I love the image of your husband running down the stairs, <laughs> eager to share the latest dream. That's yeah, terrific. it's been great. And now, yeah, now he's a dream ambassador himself going around telling everyone all about it. It's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people are hungry for this, but they don't necessarily know what they're, they're hungry for. And one of the things we've done in our dream school, as you know, is we've given people a way to talk about these things that is fun, it's quick, and it leads to action. We have lacked a sort of social protocol. We've lacked a, a way of making this rewarding socially. So you want to tell the story because you know that the person you're telling it to will respect your space, will will hold the dream with you, will encourage you to tell it really well, because that's one of the gifts that comes out of this, as you know. We've become better storytellers. We, we can choose which stories are worth holding on to. And then, of course, it always leads to action. It always leads to action. It doesn't end with some dry analysis. Uh, we, we want people to do something with us, to raise life energy, to, to create from it. That's right. The action part is probably my favorite part. And I used to do this without even knowing that it was a thing. I used to have a dream and just do something with it in my waking life. And I love how you encourage everybody to do that. Even if the, the action is just dream re-entry and going back in and getting more information, but otherwise it could be doing something in our waking lives, like researching the topic that was in our dream or dressing in the color that we saw or, you know, whatever we feel. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It, it does make everyday life a bit more magical. Yeah. I, I've made meals because of something I was eating in a dream. I've worn colors because the color in a dream. I might just walk with a dream and just let the world around me illuminate the dream. I'm just holding the dream in my mind. And I, I dreamed I dreamed a dream of being in, in London during the Blitz, being a Royal Air Force pilot in London during the Blitz, or during the Blitz, a recurring theme in my life. And my great love in this scene was a, was a was nurse, British nurse. And I'm thinking about the dream as I walk down the street. And there is a car with a license plate RN for registered nurse I've never seen before right outside my house. There's a moment when the world is sort of giving a nod saying, yes, Robert, yes, yes, did you get that? This might be for real. And I love doing research. We dream in different styles because I'm a very bookish fellow who reads a lot and loves research. I'll often get phrases or clues that require detailed research into different languages, different cultures, this kind of thing. I love doing that. I, I love dream-directed research. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I'm the same. I dreamt of a hotel that I'd never seen before, and it was very specific. I could see the image in my mind, Hotel Oliver, and it was in England, and I knew that, and I was there. But I'd never been to England. I'd never seen this hotel before. So when I woke up, I Googled it, and sure enough, the picture came up, and the hotel was exactly the way that I saw it in my dream. So yeah, I'm like you, I like to research it and then blow my mind when I see that things match up. But speaking of action from dreams, that's actually how I have you on this podcast right now, because I always wanted to interview you, of course, but I just thought, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then I had a dream and asking you to be on the podcast is the action I took from the dream that I had. I often would dream about trying to get onto a plane, but I was always in the airport and I'd never actually get on the plane to take off to go anywhere. And something would always get in the way, you know, something weird would come and block me from going across. And then recently I had a dream where I, not only did I get on the plane, I flew to the other side of the world, I got off the plane and I hopped into a cab with yourself and Lana Sackwild, who is also another dream teacher. And we were off, the three of us were off to go and run this huge event on the other side of the world. And I thought, I'm ready. 
<laughs> I'm going to message Robert Moss and we're going to start working together. <laughs> On another plane. Well, that's very synchronistic for me because I'm considering actually doing a book about my adventures in air travel. You know, I collected so many stories from my adventures in air travel. I'm considering uh, finishing and publishing a lighthearted book about synchronicity that comes up when you're getting on another plane and going yes. through the Bardo-like state of the airport and so on. So that's a very nice theme. Well, that's great. Just before we go, is there any other little piece of wisdom or little bit of advice or something that you'd like to give the listeners to leave them with today? Well, I'll say something which is not original, but I think is very true. If you can dream it, you can do it. It's a sort of maybe if you like, but why not just say, if you can dream it, you can do it. And the time is now. And the time is now. Absolutely. The time is always now. Except, a friend of mine says, except when the time is go. <laughs> time is always now, except when the time is go. Ladies and gentlemen, dream explorers and seekers of the extraordinary, thank you for joining us on this incredible journey through the realms of dreams and consciousness with the legendary Robert Moss. It's been an absolute honor to have you here, Robert. And to all our listeners, remember, dreams hold the keys to a world beyond imagination. So keep exploring and keep dreaming. And until next time, this is Melissa signing off from the Dream Hub podcast. Mm -hmm.